I begin my message, I just want to talk about a term, a sociological term. There a word that's been used more and more lately. It's a word that goes back to the 1920s and then the 1960s. The word became popular, and now it's used pretty common today. And that word is social constructs. Social constructs. You're hearing more and more people talk about social constructs. Sometimes I think in the past we would call it cultural norms. You're hearing more commentator talking about social constructs that are built. And basically a social construct is defined as shared ideas or perceptions that exist only because people in a group or society accept that they do. Shared ideas or perceptions that exist only because people in a group or society accept that they do. Basically, a social construct is a bunch of people in a society decide this is the way it should be, this is the way we should do it, and everybody else follows along, and years later people look back and say, I don't know why we do it, we just do it. Kind of probably a real popular social construct is the color pink and the color blue. Who decided that little girls should wear pink and little boys would wear blue? Why not yellow and brown or purple and green? But kind of as a society, we have decided that's how we dress our little babies. And you know, now we are like, who picked that? Even if you research, people are like, I have no idea. I mean, that's not bad. It's not a negative thing. But you know, it's, it can be negative if you decide to put your three-year-old boy in pink and everybody's like, wait a minute, you can't do that. Another social construct is like handshaking. Who decided in America that we would shake hands versus maybe giving a person a kiss on the cheek? And who decided that a handshake has to be very firm in order for it to be effective? I don't know, but we all kind of follow along with that, and it's kind of a crazy rule. If somebody gives you a handshake and it's not really firm, you know, we read into that. That's kind of a crazy thing. And another thing is about fashion. Who decided what we would wear and when, when it's appropriate? And if somebody dresses a little... You don't like that, do you? And then if you dress a little normal, society's like, did you see what that person's wearing? Well, who really cares? So all around us, we have a lot of these social constructs going on. And overall, they can be a little innocent and it doesn't really matter unless you're a person that's a little bit different and then you can feel quickly left out and you can feel quickly like there's something wrong with you. But all social constructs start out as just an idea. It's simply an idea that got really popular, and over time they became a cultural norm, even though there's no evidence behind it. There's nothing to support that you have to greet somebody with a handshake or a, a color. It's just a cultural expectation. But it all just started with a simple idea. Ideas can be really good, and ideas can be very dangerous. I think right now in our culture, we look at a lot of what we do in church as more of a social construct versus maybe a really biblical expectation for us. Or even marriage. I think a lot of marriage is based on social constructs versus what the Bible really says. And as we are in a position right now looking at what is the future of our church and how do we move forward as a church and community, it's very important that we look at what we're doing as a biblical construct versus just a social construct or the social expectation of what we do. For example, who says you have to sing three songs in the beginning and then do a message? What if you stirred it all up? Or what if you didn't have a message? I know I've done a couple weeks ago we prayed and not instead of a message. I know there's some people that would pass out if they went to church and there was no message. 
What if we did things a little bit different? You know, no, nobody says you have to sing or have a message. It does say you got to put Jesus first. It does say we celebrate communion. How about doing things different? It's probably a good idea to do things different considering that every major de denomination has pretty much been in decline for the last 50, 60, 70 years. Especially the conservative denominations are now in big decline as well. And everybody thinks, well, let's go back and do it how we did it back in the 50s. No, that ain't going to work. We need to say, God, how do you want us to do it now moving forward into, so we can reach this new society and this new community? Yeah. I mean, one thing I keep on saying is, why do we meet 52 weeks a year in this building? Why don't we take some Sundays and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go down to Riverside Park or down to uh, Heartside Park, and instead of meeting here, we'll meet down there and serve lunch. Or what if we did things different? We said, you know, maybe we would go to a park and we would just have fellowship and see who else is in the park. Or maybe we would say, there's a person in the community that needs a need. Let's go cut their grass and, 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 and paint their house or something. Why don't we do that as a community? That is church as well. You got two or three gathered and you're going to put Jesus first? We can go on the road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of a fun thing to do. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that I think we need to really consider as we move forward. Some Sunday in the new future, I want us to just have a service where we're just going to get out whiteboards and say, what do we want to do? Let's dream and let's dream big. How can we do things different so we can reach the people outside of the church expecting them to come here? Especially when it comes to kids' ministry. I think kids' ministry, we need to be radical in the way we approach it. I mean, it's amazing I consider my own journey. I am a Christian school educated person from kindergarten through seminary. The only public education I have is one driver's training class. And I got out of college a major wreck. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have an identity in Christ. Oh, I knew some scripture. I knew some Bible, but I had no relationship really with Jesus. But I had Christian education. But I never had Christian formation. You know, when I was at Fuller 25 years ago, Fuller, I love Fuller, I think it's a great seminary, was making the real transition saying, you know what, we need to stop talking so much about Christian education and talk about spiritual formation. We did that a lot with the adults, but I don't think we've done it as much as the kids. We expect the kids to be educated more. How about let's focus on formation? How about let's focus on what do kids love the most? art creativity what if we did a kids ministry that was based on creativity that was based on an art project and through the art projects you can prophetically see what god's speaking through that instead of doing the big major lesson and then if we have time at the end then we'll do a little art and send you out of the room what if we focused on art i probably could get some people that like to teach those classes and music and dance and movement i love this and you know what else and cooking fire stags amen not in here though the sudis would never go for that outside we would but i mean it's just focused on what do people want to be more creativity and i think that is our identity is creative people created in the image of God. And then through that, so anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. I think as we move forward as a church, we have to say, God, what is the ideas that you have for us instead of what we have bought into is social constructs of what a church should look like. 
I mean, I love when Jesus talks about the enemy, he describes him in one sentence. He said, he is the father of all lies. That's Jesus is all that you need to know about the devil. He's a liar. And I love that description that Jesus gives us in the Gospels. And I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard is a famous pastor, uh, professor who taught on spiritual formation. He said, you know, when the, and when the enemy found Adam and Eve in the garden, he didn't go to them with this big lie. It was a lie, but he didn't go there presented as a lie because it would have been too obvious. Instead, Dallas Willard said the enemy went to the Garden of Eden and he presented Adam and Eve with an idea. He gave them an idea. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this little idea I have? And then he quickly twisted it on them. Most bad things start as a simple idea. And so oftentimes the enemy uses the ideas to trap us. But so often God also is the originator of good ideas and good creativity. And sometimes we stand in the middle of them and wonder, what am I supposed to do? The Bible talks a lot about our enemy. But to be quite honest, in the church sometimes we forget we have an enemy. We'll go through seasons where we recognize we have an enemy, and then after a while we forget about him and we don't pay any attention to him. But I think overall as a church and a community, we need to give the devil a little bit more attention. Because I think he's getting away with a whole lot right now in our churches, our societies, and our families. And I think as followers of Jesus, we need to use the authority that God has given to us so we can put a little pressure on him and get him to stop. I think as a church and a community, we need to focus a little bit more on spiritual warfare. I think all of you are familiar with spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is something you simply cannot see, but it's a battle that's going on in the spiritual realm between God and between the devil, and it involves us. I think some of us are surprised to know that at one point, Satan was actually a good angel. He was in heaven. He was a good angel in charge of worship. He, uh, he wouldn't submit to God, and so he got kicked out of heaven. But that didn't mean the warfare was over. The warfare continues, and the warfare is primarily over you and I. Why? Because as John 10, 10 says, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy knows he can't kill God or destroy God, but he can kill and destroy each of us. I think it's sometimes we say, well, I'm not that significant. Why would the enemy want to destroy me? I barely serve God. I'm not even that good of a Christian. Why would he even care about me? It doesn't matter if you're the superstar Christian or you're a growing Christian or if your Christian has memorized the entire Bible or you don't even really know one verse in the Bible. You are a target of the enemy because Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says that you are God's treasure. You're God's treasure. And the enemy keeps trying to get you away from God. Because the enemy knows that the best way to hurt God is to harm what God treasures. Isaiah goes on, he says, God, you are so important to God that God wrote your name on the palm of his hand. I mean, it's an illustration that every time God constantly sees your name. The Apostle Paul says you are God's handiwork. You are his piece of creation. Satan knows he can't defeat God, so let's go after God's kids. But see, the good news of John 10.10 is when it says the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that sentence does not end with a period. 
it ends with a semicolon, and then it says, but Jesus has come that you may have life, and you may have life to the full. That is our promise. That's our destiny. That's the hope that we have every time we walk out of here to the world, that Jesus has come that you may have life, and you may have it to the full. And that is the message of the gospel and what we get to share to the world. But we have to be involved in spiritual warfare. We cannot ignore it. See, there's three things that we need to do. There's three things that we need to understand about the spiritual war. There's probably a whole lot more, but these are the top three for this morning. Number one, we need to acknowledge that this war actually exists. That this war is actually going on. I mean, listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's pretty clear what Paul is saying, who your battle's against. It's not against the crabby cashier. It's not against the annoying person. It's against principalities and powers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. That's good, Lori. That's our battle. But see, often we don't even acknowledge this war exists, and if you don't acknowledge the war exists, then we're failing to acknowledge God's protection for us as well in the midst of this war. Our goal is to receive everything that God has for us. And if we fail to acknowledge that this war exists, we fail to acknowledge the protection that God's going to give us in the midst of this war. The second thing that we need to be aware of is number two, this war is active. It's still going on. It's not like it stopped years ago and it'll pick up. No, it's going on right now. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now that's pretty serious. You have an enemy that's looking to devour you, and he's, he's illustrated as a lion. How many of you would go to John Ball Park today if they said, oh, by the way, the lion's loose. Oh, he's only going to devour you. I don't think anybody else would walk in. The, you would go. Greg would go. All right. Sermon's over. Greg's going. We need a new worship leader. I mean, no, none of us would walk and look at that sign and say, oh, that's just make-believe. That's not for today. That's not, that was the another day. None of us would do that. But yet when the Bible says, oh, your enemy wants to kill you like a lion, we're all, we ignore that. But see, the thing is, we can avoid going to the zoo when there's a lion loose. We can't avoid living in life because there's a lion loose. We're stuck living in this life with a loose line. That is why we need to recognize this war, and this leads us to the third thing, is we need to recognize that we have authority over that roaring lion. That, that lion is not free just to come chomp at us, but we have authority. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10:1, he called his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. That is the authority we have. Why does God give us this authority? Number one, so we can avoid the devil clobbering us and devouring us. But number two, to heal people that have been devoured by the enemy. It's to protect us 
and to bring healing to people that have been chomped up by the enemy. That's why I think it'd be kind of good if we figure out a way to get out of here a little bit more often to find the people that have been a meal for the enemy so we can pray for them to see them restored. That's God's plan for us. So how do we fight this battle? The first thing that we do, we have to resist the enemy. Paul tells us, you know, tells us in Ephesians 6.10, he said, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. And then in the next verse, Paul goes on to read the scripture that I read earlier about our wars not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers of darkness. But before Paul says that, he says, remember, you got to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Then in verse 13, he says, therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you may be able to resist the enemy in his time of evil. Then after you bat then after the battle, you will be standing firm. See, this verse is very, very important. See, what Paul is saying to us, the authority that you have is only in the name of Jesus. The authority that you have is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not because you just got some good authority because you're a good person. It's because of your relationship. So what Paul is saying here, you need to lean into the relationship with the, you have with Jesus if you are going to be able to resist the enemy. And he's telling us we have to do that in order to use our authority. We have to resist what the enemy's trying to tell us to do, resist the plans that the enemy has for us so we can be totally submitted to what God has for us. So we resist the enemy. And number two, we renounce the enemy. To renounce is a definition means to give up or to put aside voluntarily. We're called to give things up in our life. We don't get to do everything that we want to do, and I think we all know that, and we know that process of sanctification where we're continually being delivered and set free from maybe some annoying habits we do or behaviors we do, so we know that we need to do that. Because Jesus said clearly to his disciples, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. See, part of being Jesus' disciple is renouncing things. Saying, I can't do that. I can't participate in that. And I know some of us, we are, we're in the process of renouncing things, and that, that's okay. But I love this quote by David Platt because I think it helps us understand how serious Jesus is when he tells us we need to give up some things. It says, contrary to what many believe today, Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically or exaggerating when he made the statement. He meant what he said. Then in order to follow him, we must voluntarily relinquish control over every aspect of our lives. That includes our possessions, our comfort, our careers, our family, our position, our sin, and even ourselves. That's what Jesus asked of his first disciples, and that's what he continued to ask for each of us today. That we resist the enemy, and we renounce the things that we shouldn't participate in. Then there's a third thing that we need to do. I think we've ignored this. We need to rebuke the enemy. This is our aggressive part of our fight against the enemy. See, to rebuke the definition in the Webster's Dictionary is simply an expression or a sharp disapproval disapproval of an action or behavior. That's what to rebuke someone means. That means you don't agree with what they're saying. You don't agree with what they're trying to tell you to do. It's expressing your opinion that you don't like that. 
Now, it's interesting. Some people say we can't rebuke the enemy because, you know, um, we just can't. And, well, Jesus rebuked the enemy. Jesus also gives us instructions how to rebuke other people. So if we can rebuke other people and Jesus rebukes the enemy, I think you see a practice that we would rebuke the enemy because in order to rebuke the enemy, you're simply saying, number one, I disagree with your plans for your, my life. Number two, you're saying, we're not going to follow your deception. And number three, we're saying, stop interfering with my life. When you say, I rebuke the enemy and his plans in Jesus' name, you're simply saying, I don't agree, devil, with what you're trying to tell me to do. Number two, I don't agree with your deception, and I want you removed from my life. That's all it means to rebuke the enemy, to rebuke his plans. It's as simple as that, or rebuking it, what the enemy's doing in somebody else's life. Here's three different times, and Jesus did it more than three times, he used the word rebuke. And I want to remind you that we do the things Jesus did because he's our model for us. And Jesus did all of this activity led by the Holy Spirit. So we've seen people do excessive things where they're rebuking everything, and sometimes we're like, oh, that's crazy behavior. Fine, it is crazy behavior, but that means we don't do it anymore. Jesus rebuked, listen to them in, in uh, Matthew 8. Jesus rose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and then there's great calm. That's pretty remarkable. All Jesus did, he said, in Jesus' name, I rebuked the wind, and it stopped. Now Mark gives us a little more definition to that. He says, and he awoke, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace be still. Another model. They even say, in, the end, say, in Jesus' name, I rebuke the plans of the enemy, and I say the enemy's plans, peace be still. Sometimes that's important to add on. I rebuke your plans, be silent. But Jesus also, in Matthew 17, it says, Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of her, and the, him and the boy was healed instantly. Simply, Jesus said, I rebuke the plan of the enemy in this little boy's life, and the boy was healed instantly. In Luke 4, it says, Jesus stood over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. Pretty simple. Jesus was relying on the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit that was working in him, and also he had permission from God, and God was leading him. I think so oftentimes we say, well, I tried that one time, I rebuked that one time, and it didn't work. Well, fine. You do it again. That's as simple as that. You do it again. I mean, Jesus said to us in John 14, verse 12, he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will even do greater things than this because I am going to the Father. Jesus is simply saying, do the things that I'm showing you and modeling for you to do. There's times that you're going to rebuke something, and you know what? Maybe nothing is going to change. But then there's times you're going to be rebuke something, and everything will change. That doesn't mean we don't stop. Think about the game of golf. The purpose of golf is to get a hole in one every single hole. You hit the ball, it goes in the hole. Most professional golfers have never got a hole in one. But they go back every single week and golf and golf and golf. It's the same thing with rebuking the enemy. Same thing with doing deliverance. Sometimes it always doesn't happen how you wanted it to, and sometimes the battle is going to be a little bit longer. You might have to do more rebuking than just one time. 
I think it's important that we take a strategy. When I was at Fuller Seminary, one of my professors, Chuck Kraft, said, we need to pray a lot of if-then prayers. If this headache of mine is caused by the enemy, I rebuke it in Jesus' name, and I ask for healing. If the headache goes away, great. If it doesn't go away, then you take an Advil. If you got a big fight and the tension going on in the family, I just rebuke the enemy and his plans over my family, and I pray the peace of God over my family. If it stops quickly, wonderful. If it doesn't stop, keep doing it and get a counselor too. But I think so often we're in a world that has developed social constructs that have said if you can't see it, if you can't hear it, then it doesn't exist. We've been leaning in a little bit too much to what the world says about spiritual warfare, that it doesn't exist, that we've ignored it too much. We need to get back to Paul. The war We have a war going on, against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And we need to use, we need to be, we need to submit to Jesus. We need to resist the enemy. We need to renounce the enemy's plans, but then we need to rebuke him and say, no, I'm not following you. You be silent. I'm not listening to you. Don't harm my children. Don't harm my grandchildren. Don't speak to me. Don't interrupt my life. Because see, if we are not rebuking the enemy so often, what we end up doing is we come up with a lot of really bad ideas and we end up striving a lot. I love the story of Jacob and Esau. Some of you know the first recorded twins in the Bible. Jacob and Esau, their parents are um, Isaac and Rebekah. Grandparents are uh, Abram and and Sarah. It's kind of the royal family of the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to bless the entire world through, through Abraham and Sarah's offspring. And so Rebecca here, she's pregnant with these twins, and she inquires of the Lord one day, and she said, there's a lot of turmoil going on inside of me. What's going on? And the Lord answers her. It's this kind of crazy little story. He says, there is a warfare going on inside of you because your youngest, your younger son, that's going to be born second, is going to inherit the birthright, that he would be treated as the firstborn. Now, that's really good news if you're the second-born Jacob because suddenly you elevate to the first-born status. First-born status, you get a whole lot more of the inheritance. You also get a whole lot more responsibility, but usually you're just looking at the financial part of it. But so, the, so Jesus, God tells her while you're pregnant, Esau's going to be born first, Jacob's going to be born second, but Jacob's going to carry the birthright. Not only will he get more money, more responsibility, but that means Jesus is going to be born through his family line. That's a pretty good promise. That's a pretty good deal. So Jacob grows up, and Jacob's more of the indoor guy, and his brother Esau's more of the outdoor guy, and Jacob wants that birthright. Now, I don't think Jacob knows anything that's going on about the conversation between God and his mom, but Jacob knows on the inside that he wants that birthright. I think sometimes we understand a little bit of the desire in our heart that God put there, and next thing what we do is we try to figure out how to get that for ourselves. So Jacob's growing up. He wants his brother's birthright, can't figure out how to get it. One day Esau comes in the house and says, I am so hungry. If I don't eat, I'm going to die. And Jacob says, well, I got some food for you. But I won't give it to you unless you give me your birthright. Esau's so hot and tired, he's like, fine. I'll probably die if I don't eat. So here, take my birthright. Give me some stew. So Esau eats his stew and gives up his birthright. However, That birthright is not going to automatically transfer from Esau to Jacob unless their father Isaac agrees to the deal. How's that going to happen? 
So one day, Isaac's getting close to the end of his life, and he realizes that his days are really numbered. So he calls in Esau and says, Esau, you know, before I die, I need to pray and bless you and give you the, the, your, your inheritance. So what I want you to do, I want one last good meal with you. So go hunting, catch some wild animal, cook it up for me. Let's have a meal together, then I'll bless you. Meanwhile, Mother Rebecca's in the other room, and she's hearing this conversation, and she's thinking, oh my this can't happen. Jacob is supposed to get the, the family blessing. He's supposed to get the birthright. And so she devises this whole plan with Jacob in order to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob, which is so crazy because God told Rebecca exactly what he planned to do. But I, Rebecca wasn't going to just sit still with the promises of God. She thought, okay, there's a promise of God, but you know what? I got to make sure that that happens. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So she gets a crazy idea in her head. Let's trick Isaac into giving the birthright to Jacob. So she says to Jacob, she says, you know what? You're, you're, this is strange too. Your brother's so hairy, so let's put a bunch of goat fur on your back, make you smell like meat. And you're going to go into your father and you're going to trick him and lie to him and say you're Esau, then he's going to bless you. And that's exactly what Jacob did. He tricked his brother, deceived his brother to get something that God had already promised he's going to do for him. And so Esau finds out what happened. He says, Jacob, we'll wait for dad to die and then you're next. I'm going to kill you. So Jacob, being the smart young man he is, he flees town afterwards. And for 30 years he's gone, he's living in exile, but God is still faithful to Jacob and he blesses him with many blessings. And then one day, God interferes with Jacob's life and says to him, I want you to go back home. I want you to reconcile with your brother. And Jacob said, okay, I'll do it. I have a feeling that was a rather long conversation. But Jacob agreed that he's going to go home. And so we pick up the story in Genesis 32, verse 9. Jacob's on his way home, and he's getting nervous. And so it says, Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I would treat you kindly. You see the transformation that happened in Jacob after his 30 years in exile. He got to the place where he's going to submit to God out of obedience, and he's going to do what God had asked him to do. He's going to renounce what he's done in the past, and he's going to resist the enemy's temptation, but also he's going to go to God and say, God, this is what you promised me. This is what you're going to do for me. He stopped striving, thinking, how am I going to make that happen? Instead, he said, I'm going to trust God that you're going to keep your word. And there's our invitation in there to stop striving instead to lean into the promises that God has for us. Then in verse 10, it says, I am not worthy of the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I own nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills now my household fills two large camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and children. But you promised me 
I will surely treat you with kindness, and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. See, it's the second time that Jacob goes before God and says, God, but you promised me. Jacob's scared. He's nervous. He inherited a bunch of wealth. But Jacob's realizing, that's doing nothing for me. Because right now I'm pretty vulnerable. And it gets him to the place that all he's saying is, God, but your word says. God, your word says. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm afraid he's going to kill me. But your word says. You're going to treat me kindly. So then in the end of Genesis 32, it picks up with Jacob goes to bed that night and he has this wild dream. He has this dream where he's wrestling. Some translations say it's a dream of wrestling with another man. Some say he's he's wrestling with an angel. Some people say he's wrestling with Jesus. But the point is he's having this wild dream. And in this dream, he happens to get his hip displaced. He's in incredible pain, and he's crying out in the dream. His hip is sore, and he's crying out for the person to let go of him. And... um, And the man in the dream, or the angel in the dream, says back to him, he says, you let go of me. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. It shows you the determination of Jacob at that point, saying, I am going to get the blessing that I need. But then the angel, or Jesus in the story, says to Jacob, well, what is your name? It's interesting that in this point of the story, they would say, well, what is your name? See, it's very significant at this point that Jacob has asked what his name means. Because, see, his name means deceiver. And at this point in the dream, the angel's saying to Jacob, you need to tell me your identity that you believe right now. See, before we can receive the identity that God has for us, sometimes we need to acknowledge the enemy, the, the, the name that we have picked up for ourselves. See, Jacob just doesn't only mean deceiver I forgot (laughs) it also means the Lord will protect Jacob can mean deceiver or the Lord will protect see when we are born we are born what way are you going to go are you going to live into the identity that God has for you that he's going to protect you or are you going to follow the enemy's plans that you become a deceiver And at that point in Jacob's dream, the man's saying, what is your name? And Jacob says, okay, my name's Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I know what I've done. And then quickly the angel says, now you're going to have a new name. Now your name is going to be Israel. Jacob had to acknowledge who and how he had become so so in order he could become who he really is. And now that his name is Israel, which means to struggle, but it also means God reigns. Israel means to struggle, and it means God reigns. It is at that point where Jacob received his new identity, and he was reconciled with his brother. See, it's this beautiful story of seeing what striving does in your life instead of leaning into the promises of God. See, spiritual warfare is not about trying to make God's plans happen on our own. Spiritual warfare is not saying God has a plan, he can't get it done, so he needs super me to come in and do it all for him. That's not what spiritual warfare is all about. Spiritual warfare is about submitting to God. Spiritual warfare is about not following the enemy's plans. Spiritual warfare is about receiving God's authority and protection. 
Spiritual warfare is about rebuking the enemy so you can do what God has called you to do, but we're not trying to make anything happen on our own. That's a pitfall sometimes in spiritual warfare where people think, well, i got to accomplish God's plans for him today. No, God has promises all through his word. Jacob never had to go through all that junk he went through. If him and his mother would have simply said, oh yeah, God said he's going to do this for me. But I need to rebuke every crazy idea that the enemy keeps giving me to try to get me to follow him. There's a war over our ideas. There's a war over our creativity. There's a war over us hearing the voice of God. And it can be confusing at times. Yes, God gives us discernment. God gives us wisdom. But also, it's a hard world to live in. But God's given us these promises of Scripture, and he's given us authority to rebuke the plans of the enemy. And sometimes you may rebuke and you get discouraged because nothing happened, but that doesn't mean it's over. It was interesting, last week Lori had a word of knowledge. She said, God wants to pray for people with sore knees. So I went up. Donna went up. My knee's still sore. <laughs> Always a high achiever. Always a high achiever of the rope. But you know what that simply tells me? That doesn't say, oh, I'm going to be discouraged and nobody's ever going to pray for my knee because it's still sore. It showed me that God cared enough that said, come front, I want her to pray for your knee. It showed me the compassion of Christ is always for me. Even if I didn't get healed, he's still with me. I think we need to give the enemy a little bit more attention. He's getting away with too much. We just declare the victory, declare the promises of God and just say, God, give me the strength to resist Give me the strength to renounce and give me the grace to rebuke at the right time. So, Father, I do thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for this message. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who's given us authority over unclean spirits, over demonic principalities and powers. You've given us authority over sicknesses and disease. And, Lord, I come here today, God, asking that you would change our mindset over spiritual warfare and over confronting the enemy. Lord, so often our mind is filled with social constructs and social cultural norms about what to do and when to do. And, God, we want to be people that are obedient to your word and transformed by your word. So, God, would you fill each of us, renew each of us, Lord, so that we have the mind of Christ and that we actively engage the enemy, Lord, Lord, I want to see victory for each person in this room. I want to see victory over each family in this room, over our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews and our friends and our neighbors. Lord, we want to pray for the lost and see them come to know you. We want to pray for people who have been devoured by the enemy to see you restore their lives. So God, we come and we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just give us a confidence to do what you've already called us to do. Lord, you've given us the Holy Spirit. It's there. Lord, help us to be active in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray.